Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My guest is Paul Marshall. He's a senior fellow, part of the Center for Religious Freedom. It's under the Hudson Institute. We're going to talk about what's happening with what appears to be the global assault on Christians and Christianity. So that's the topic we'll be talking about today. So welcome, Paul. Okay, thank you very much, Richard. Yeah, if you would, tell me a bit about your background and uh, how you got to this point where you know, you're studying what's happening with Christianity worldwide. I actually graduated in geology in England and then went to Canada to go to graduate school. And then after a couple of years, I switched to political philosophy, and I taught that in Toronto for about 20, 25 years. And then what I got particularly interested in and concerned about religious freedom, I, which is in the 90s, I moved down to the U.S. in 1998 to the sort of think tank world. And I was initially at Freedom House and then um, the Hudson Institute. And I'm still at Hudson and the Religious Freedom Institute, both think tanky public policy places. And then I now also have a chair at uh, Baylor University in Texas. Okay. What is your current uh, research and work about right now? A range of things. Uh, just on the religion, I'm doing some non religious freedom stuff too. Maybe that would be an interesting aside. I've just uh, finished a book on the friendship between. John Perkins, African-American from Mississippi, born in 1930. John's still alive. He's 94. Uh, amazing history. He's written uh, quite a few books. But the friendship between him and a very rich California um, philanthropist, Howard Amundsen, and this wasn't just a case of uh, Howard Amundsen funding John Perkins' work. John started the uh, a lot of uh, self-development groups. There's over a thousand of them in the U.S., uh, but became friends. Families went on holiday together, and it's quite a remarkable um, relation that's still going on. So that that's an aside thing, but 90% of my work is on religious freedom. I look at uh, overall trends and patterns in the world. We edited two world surveys of, of religious freedom, and there are particular countries in which I take an interest. Uh, one of those is uh, Egypt, and another one is uh, Indonesia, which is a fascinating place. So, okay, well, what are you observing right now in regards to religious freedom, Christianity uh, around the world? What are you seeing? Okay, religious freedom worldwide is generally decreasing. That's true for human rights in general and also for democracy. In general, most of the trend lines that are going down, you have highly impressive China, of course, but then in India, increasing religious intolerance. That's a lot of that in the Middle East. Uh, also now increasingly in, in Europe and then um, Central Asia. So the trend lines are down. And uh, that's for most forms of religious freedom. In terms of for Christians, probably the trend lines are going down even more. And I can talk about some of those patterns and reasons if uh, you're interested. Yeah, oh, definitely. Tell me what you're seeing and why do you think you're seeing it? Okay. One is 
we're talking about a global assault on Christians. It's not just one factor, one causation. There's, there's lots of different trends uh, going on. Uh, if I summarize them, you have the remaining um, uh, self-declared communist countries, which uh, we can argue about whether they're really communist in any real sense, but self-described ones at the moment are uh, China, North Korea, Vietnam, Laos, and Cuba. And those still remain highly repressive of uh, religion. And the with North Korea, that's almost any religious expression, but they're particularly worried about Christianity because of its, its links overseas. In that case, you have authoritarian governments who simply want to control everything in their society. And uh, religion, and especially Christianity, is a threat. You have other countries... Uh, sort of ex-communist, but haven't changed much. Russia is a striking example. Its neighbor, Belarus, is like that. In Central Asia, you have uh, the stands, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, and so forth. And this post-communist, but the policies haven't really changed much. So it, it carries on as before. So those are sort of two trends. A third is religious nationalism. People and regimes try to identify their country, their culture, their society with a particular religion. And this is uh, now very strong in South Asia. I already mentioned uh, India, sort of radical Hindu movements operating there, also radical Hindu movements in Nepal. And then you get radical Buddhist movements in uh, Sri Lanka and Myanmar. That may sound strange to people. Most Buddhists, like most Hindus, are, of course, not being uh, repressive or violent. Uh, but there are such movements, though. You've had what does it look like, radical Buddhism? It's weird. You have... You Is there had, a bad old cry like, Namaste, before they hack apart their enemies? Or No, you see that massacring people. But in Sri Lanka, tension between Buddhists and, and Hindus was one of the factors in the Civil War. Um, you've had Buddhist monks leading mobs to burn down churches. I'd say, you know, this is a Buddhist area, it's a Buddhist village, there shouldn't be a church there. In Myanmar, you have a very authoritarian government. It's a military junta, which is, has never been elected, but it tries to dress itself up in Buddhism uh, to get self-legitimacy. And most Buddhists would reject that. Their leaders are, are being imprisoned. But you, you have radical Buddhist movements, including one monk who describes himself as the, uh, the Buddhist Osama bin Laden, being leading mob attacks, particularly on, um, well, Christians as well, more particularly Muslims in the South is a Muslim population. I wonder if Buddhists could be particularly dangerous or amenable to this because, I, again, this is just my speculation, but it seems like Buddhism is kind of a form of nihilism. Maybe I'm totally wrong. Or it lends itself to nihilism. Well, I don't think so. Buddhism is pretty hard to get hold of. It just seems like the premise is, you know, life is suffering and it sucks. Then you slowly seek to move away from that and then uh, that suffering ceases and you become, you know, the old, old joke, what does the Buddhist say to the hot dog vendor? Make me one with everything. I'm not sure that that's a form, a particular form of nihilism. If you actually look at the practitioners, say in uh, Vietnam or, or Laos or um, uh, Thailand, well, take someone like the Dalai Lama, it doesn't seem that the deeper currents there are nihilism. But I probably have to know much more than I do. I'm actually reading in Confucianism now. But I would say Buddhist majority countries 
sort of want to on a world scale have a fairly decent religious freedom record. When they're repressive, it's not the Buddhists, it's the communists. Uh, like in Vietnam, Vietnam's majority Buddhist, but it's not the Buddhists closing down churches. It's the government, which still calls itself communist. Uh, same pattern in Laos. You get that sort of religious nationalism, you know, that Myanmar belongs to the Buddhist, India belongs to Hindus. But then they, so that was three trends. The fourth trend is, is radical Islam. And um, which is you get the extreme forms like ISIS and Al Qaeda or the Taliban in um, Afghanistan, but uh, Pakistan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, even uh, Egypt uh, could be highly repressive of their religious minorities, including Christians. Most people don't know it, but one of the oldest churches that denominations in the world is Egyptian. Usually, all the Coptic Church means Egyptian. So Westerners had sort of co uh, copped, gipped Egypt, but you know they've been there since the first, first century. It's officially called the Church of Saint Mark. What does Egypt mean? The name? Do you you know? I'm going to ask you because like you said cop Egypt, etc. That I don't know whether the actual name, um, yeah, you know, how English speakers got that name. Egyptians do not call Egypt Egypt. It's Misa. It was probably when Westerners got there, maybe even Greek and whatever, when you had, they were interested in the Coptic church, there's about 10 million Christians in Egypt, and uh, had sort of copped Egypt and whatever, and started calling the country after the sort of uh, the Christian religion. How far back that uh, goes, I don't know. But that, that it's not an Egyptian thing. It's not their self-description. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. I guess, yeah, in the Old Testament, I was looking at Google, it says the name is Mizraim, is the real name given for Egypt in the Hebrew Old Testament. So is that what uh, Egyptians call their country today, Mizraim? Yeah, Mizraim. Usually, if you spell it English, it's usually M-I-S-R. Interesting. Okay. Well, what's, um, I've heard, well, in regards to Christianity, what, uh, what are you seeing? Like, I've seen in Israel, I guess there was a potential bill before the Knesset making it illegal, or, I don't know, some kind of fines or punishments or arrests if you, you know, if you uh, preach the Gospels, seems to be growing. What are some hotbeds where Christians are really having trouble and why? At North Korea, always, there is... North Korea, all religion is illegal, but if you're more shamanistic religion, you um, you can sort of practice that on your own and you can stay more hidden. Christians uh, typically want to get together. It, it has a strong communal side, and that is dangerous. So possession of a Bible can get you sent to a labor camp along with your family. Uh, they'll send labor camps. That's the worst place in the world for pretty well everything. Religious persecution. China, 
especially under Xi, has become much more repressive. It's repressing the Muslim Uyghurs in Central Asia, still repressing uh, Falun Gong, and increasingly repressive of Christians. Uh, they're demanding that churches install cameras in the pulpit, uh, but not so you can see the preacher. The cameras are focused outwards, so the government can see, spy on who's in the have uh, started uh, making changes to the Bible. Where is this? China. Yeah, they want to surveil everything. How are they changing the Bible? The story of the woman taken in adultery, you might remember, uh, there's, there's a crowd gathered, and they, they bring to uh, Jesus a woman who says she was caught in adultery. Uh, aren't we supposed to uh, stone her? And then uh, Jesus says nothing, but he draws in the sand. We're not sure what he said, but gradually, and then he says, you know, let the person who is without sin, in King James Version, let the person who is without sin cast the first stone. Okay, you know, those of you that never done anything wrong, you go ahead, you do it first. And the cloud slowly goes away. And Jesus says to the woman, go and sin no more. Two things, so he's forgiving. He also calls it a sin, doesn't say it's okay. And now China has changed that. So Jesus has her punished. At the end, because they thought the original story encouraged lawlessness. Then uh, China is also using religious prisoners for body part. You know, they have, you know, for transplants, you want a kidney or an eye or something of this kind. Prisoners in labor camps, particularly Uyghurs, they usually check with Falun Gong as well, and some Christians, they do a medical checkup for you. So if someone you know, needs a particular organ, they already know whether you're compatible. That's terrible. And there's, you know, people are going to China or surrounding countries because you, you know, if there's a queue for organ transplants, you can't get them here. Kick up enough money and China will do it for you. So that's bad. Afghanistan, any Afghan who is discovered to be a Christian will be killed by the Taliban because the assumption is that all Afghans were Muslim. Therefore, if you say you're a Christian, you're an apostate from Islam and the punishment for that is death. So uh, when the U.S., did a rapid retreat from Afghanistan. All sorts of people were trying to get out, you know, people who'd worked with the U.S. military and translators and people who we dumped back there. But also the Christians were, were seeking to flee. If they were, if they were discovered, they would, be, uh, they would be killed. So there were relief rights of Christians coming out of the uh, Pakistan, highly repressive. It has a blasphemy law, well, it has three blasphemy laws. And um, and anybody can be accused of blasphemy. Uh, but religious minorities are in greater danger because if a Muslim accuses, say, a Christian of blasphemy and it goes to an Islamic court, the testimony of the Muslim is worth more than the testimony of the Christian. So if it's he said versus he said, and you're a Christian, you just lost. And uh, the blasphemy laws carry the death penalty. Though the biggest danger for you is not the government, but if you're accused of blasphemy, a mob will kill you. So those are some of the bad places. Uh, we haven't really touched on Africa, but dealing with radical Islam, throughout West Africa, we've heard about this with the coups in, um, in various countries. But uh, there are massacres of Christians taking place by ISIS in West Africa, particularly Nigeria, now also East Africa, uh, as going down the coast as far as Mozambique, almost to South Africa. And you have had, picking this word, these words advisedly, in Nigeria, you have had thousands of Christians killed by radical Islamist groups in recent years, maybe up to 20,000. This is a thing which is 
hardly ever reported, and our own State Department uh, downplays it. Are there dominoes in this, where certain nations, if they keep going the way they're going with persecuting Christians, that you think it'll all of a sudden other nations will ramp it up big time, or is it um, is it like a slowly simmering pot? Like, how do you see all worldwide activity in regards to Christians uh, progressing over the next? I can say slowly simmering. You know, I mentioned at the beginning, this isn't just you know one assault. There's not like one big you know worldwide plot. Let's go for Christians and others. There are these different trends, but they are worsening because religion is getting more mobilized. In fact, if I can give a, a sort of thought example, uh, Indonesia is a country which I work in a lot. It's the world's largest Muslim country, and by and large, it's a pretty open and tolerant place. But imagine 150, 200 years ago, you were a Muslim villager in, in Java. There were no roads then. There would be passed through the jungle, and people would use uh, carts and things like that. But uh, you didn't worry about where you'd live because you're going to live there. That's where your family. You wouldn't worry about what you were going to do. You were going to be a peasant because that's all all there was there. You wouldn't worry about what religion you were because everybody you knew was a Muslim. These things were not choices you made in life. Those are things that you you just inherited. You were born into a world, and things were unchanneled. So at many levels, it could be quite relaxed. Uh, but then you get what we're calling slowly modernity or globalization or whatever term we want to use. And that might first appear that you get increased roads, so you start to see different people uh, coming through your village that may be of different religions. So if you're Muslim, mm-hmm. suddenly you're aware of Christians. Then there may be magazines or newspapers, and then someone in the village gets a radio, and you're learning about things elsewhere. Then you get a TV, and then you get the internet. And suddenly... All these choices are there. Well, maybe you could go to a, a town and, and tell you, go to university, get a different job, uh, different ideas, live somewhere else, have a different religion. So what before was just assumed, you were born into it, now can be questioned. So that means that religious groups all over the world now have to become more assertive. Beforehand, you were just sort of that's the way the world was, and you just accepted it. Now it's challenged. There are all sorts of challenges and differences and people questioning things, so you've got to push back. So religions are now more assertive than they were 100 years, 200 years ago. And that's, that's across the board. Secularists are more assertive too. One aspect of that is militancy. Just because you're assertive, it doesn't mean you're going to have to be violent and repress other people. It just means you, you're going to sort of push back. But it does tend to lead to increased militancy and then the denial of religious freedom to others. So a lot of this is to do with uh, what we call globalization or whatever term we want to use. Well, because of globalization, the nations take their cues. Again, like, like I'm saying, are there leading nations that are being watched, let's say, by other nations? And if they start persecuting, they say, all right, they're doing it, we're going to do it too. You know, do they all learn from each other? Like, how does this dynamic work? I think not too much. Just on the globalization thing, it's sort of um, globalization challenges traditional societies. So they've got to become more assertive if they want to be able to stand up in this sort of gale which is hitting them. In terms of countries, they may learn from each other if they see another country getting away with it. Um, they may imitate it. But usually, it's they have common interests. Vietnam has not become 
more militant in the last five or six years on religion because China has. It's just, it feels itself more threatened. Similarly with the Taliban, they're not picking this up from some of the original ideology was uh, from Saudi Arabia. But generally, no, maybe with one exception, that when you're getting more aggressive forms of Islam, Islamist, political Islam, that's also missionary uh, religion that is, they want to spread that. So you get people from more oppressive places like Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan uh, for Sunnis or for Iran for Shia who go into other Muslim countries and say, which are more open, like Indonesians say, you guys are, you know, you're not really good Muslims. You've got to get with the program and you've got to make sure that these other religions uh, don't develop. And if someone converts, they've got to know they're going to be killed. So in that sense, within radical Islam, there is that sort of expansion and imitation uh, with the other countries, it's much more what they see in their, their own interest or their national pride. How have you seen historically that a country can come back from the edge, come away from persecution? Like, How does that happen? Some countries were persecuting because they were controlled by others. I mean, one of the most remarkable ones is talked about, you know, mentioned the fall of the Soviet Union, but Russia is still repressive. So is Belarus and Central Asia. But three countries which are part of the Soviet Union, well, several more. The Baltics, uh, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania, some of the most religiously free places in the world, they have changed. Ukraine has its problems, but much more religiously free uh, than Russia and places such as... Uh, well, recently Georgia. Ukraine seems to be going the opposite way, persecuting Orthodox, you know, Eastern Orthodox Christians. Yeah, well, the, boy, that gets complicated. You've got three different Orthodox churches in mm. Ukraine, and one of them is allied with, the, uh, with Russia. And uh, Patriarch Kirill, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, is also the head of one of the denominations within Ukraine itself. And so um, one of the fears is in Ukraine is that you have these churches and you have these clergy allied with the Russians and worry that some of them may be so much allied that they may be spying for them. That's what's nice. behind these things. But there are two other Orthodox churches, denominations operating in Ukraine, this competition uh, between them, and uh, lots of other religions too. Eastern Rite Catholics is a very large church there. Protestantism is growing. And uh, so, as I say, if you want to compare Ukraine to Russia, it's, it's much better. But several of the post-Soviet countries have improved Except with now the growth of ISIS affiliates, Sub-Saharan Africa has been pretty well religiously free. And the country we haven't, area we haven't touched on, Latin America, is one of the re most religiously free continents around. There's exceptions. It's, it's primarily Catholic, right? South America? Yes. And it used to be more repressively Catholic. You had established Catholic churches. Uh, Protestants could have a difficult time. But especially since the Second Vatican Council, it's very much opened up. So countries such as Brazil or Peru may have other problems, but religious freedom is not one of them. They're still majority Catholic, but a much more open Catholicism. The repressive places are still like Cuba or now uh, Nicaragua, which has become very repressive in the Catholic Church. Ortega is still in there, if you remember uh, you may not have been born there, but with the fight with the, the Sandinistas uh, 30 and more years ago, and it was hoped that they were sort of Marxists. They said, well, no, we're really nationalists. We believe in pluralism. We'll have an open government. 
Well, guess what? I mean, they're out for a while, but no, they're now highly repressive. And the the president they had 30 years ago is still the president and his wife's the vice president, by coincidence. Just in general, Latin America is a place which um, has improved, except for militant Islam, especially in Nigeria, much of sub-Saharan Africa is there. Europe is getting more repressive, usually for you get a few things. One is there's more control and fear of Muslims. Secondly, with radical Islam, you get radical Muslims carrying out attacks, say, on the French satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo, or massacres at, at concerts, hundreds of people killed, Ariana Grande conference. So you, you're getting increased level of violence there. Many secular Europeans are very nervous about what they keep calling sects, that is S-E-C-T-S, who they're without very much evidence of brainwashing people, and then increasingly secular and demanding that life be secular. Just one example, it's been in the news, there is a, a German couple who didn't want to send their children to a German state school, but German law requires it. So they fled Germany and uh, found refuge in the United States, where they've been for about 10 years. Now the government's threatening to send them back to Germany, where they're likely to lose their children unless they send them there. So that's, that's a dramatic example, but you're getting that more secular mindset of distrusting independent religion. Why does persecution seem to ramp up, and where, like, what are the factors that uh, make it you know, get, get a lot worse suddenly in a place? One is, I mentioned earlier that globalization uh, tends to make religions more assertive, and that can affect religious freedom. Another factor with Christianity is the distinction between the authority of the church and the authority of the state. Uh, Christianity has always held that there are, at least when it got access to political power, that there are two rulers, the spiritual ruler and the secular ruler, and one should not usurp the authority over the other. One of the things this meant is the state could not claim to control all of society. The church needed its independence. And bear in mind, when we talk about a church then, we're not talking about just First Methodist down on the corner. The church was the education system. I mean, if you got educated, you, it was going to be in church seminaries and uh, church-related universities. Uh, the church was the media. If the king wanted to announce new taxes, I mean, he couldn't put an ad in the newspaper. There would be a decoration which would be read out from the pulpits. That's how you got news. So a very influential body. And so this has meant that within Christianity, I mean, Christians have often been lousy at doing it, a very strong assertion of the independence of the church from the state, from government. And when you get authoritarian governments, that is a threat to them. The late Samuel Huntington, probably the best political scientist in the United States in the last half of the the 20th century, said that with Christianity, you distinguish God and Caesar. He says, but in radical Islam, God is Caesar. In communism, Caesar is God. So that bifurcation in Christianity is a threat to authoritarian government. And uh, that's why there are places where Christians may be persecuted, whereas other sort of more passive religions are not. 
So what Americans call, miscall separation of church and state is not an American thing. It goes back to, I mean, mentioning the Old Testament. The priests and the kings and the judges were not the same people, and they had different authorities, and they were not to try and usurp one another. Uh, that goes back uh, you know, within the roots of Judaism as well as Christianity. So that means that Christianity can be a challenge to, to communist governments, any government which doesn't want a more plural society. So I, I, that's another major factor. Maybe a third one with Christianity, I mentioned earlier that in a traditional pattern in the, the sort of uh, my uh, thought experiment of a village in Java who, where things weren't channeled, uh, traditionally you were going to be what you were born to be. You were going to be a farmer or a peasant. You were going to live in this village. You were going to be a Muslim. That was a given. There were the question of choices just didn't come up. But one thing about uh, Christianity, and not just evangelicals, who's saying you're not stuck with what you were born to. You can, in fact, be born again. And that means not just a saving experience of Jesus Christ, but Life can be changed. Uh, old patterns can be broken. New things can come into existence. In that sense, that's not just an evangelical thing. Uh, Catholics and Orthodox and others would say something similar. So the response to globalization, secondly, the fight for the independence of the church from the state and the possibility of things coming starting again challenges traditional societies. I think those are three major factors. Okay. Well, very good, Paul. What's the best place for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Probably the best initial source is the Hudson Institute. On their website, any articles I publish, either you know, boring scholarly ones or more lively journalistic ones, Hudson will uh, reprint those, put them on a website, give you a link. So that's an easy way to get a couple of online magazines I recommend and I write for frequently. One is called Religion Unplugged. It's a weird name. I voted against having it, but other people liked it. And that's probably the best online source of religion news in North America uh, right now. It's very good. Another magazine online called Providence on Christianity and foreign policy uh, that deals with international relations. So I write in those quite a bit. Um, Institute for Studies of Religion at Baylor University will also, if you go to their website, will provide links to any of my uh, recent writing. Well, very good. Thank you much for being on the call. I appreciate it, Paul. Okay. Thank you very much indeed for having me, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.